Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Now this is the most crucial part. Oh my God! You put the pasta back in the pot. You add a little gravy and a little butter. Then you put the fire back on. For 45 seconds, stir it up real nice. 45 seconds? Yeah, that way the macaroni absorbs the gravy instead of just coats it. This is for flavor. I need a favor. What? I need a piece. I mean, I don't need one, but, you know. Mm. How much I owe you for it? Get out of here. Your money's no good. Macaroni's ready! And no, the show did not just open up with a cooking class this week, but rather by way of introduction to our guest coming up, Joey Pantoliano, alias Joey Pants, and alias his Emmy Award-winning Ralphie, in a less somber moment in that classic mob noir series, The Sopranos. Quote, The Sopranos showed the deconstruction of the family, using America as the fabric of the unraveling. As Tony Soprano unraveled, so shall America. The actor, whose credits include M.A.S.H., Risky Business, Roy Cohn in Robert Kennedy and His Times, La Bamba, The Matrix, and Bad Boys, discusses departing Hoboken as a kid, not to become an actor, but shining shoes on Madison Avenue instead, his performance that never was in Off-Broadway's Drift, shutting down just before opening with the pandemic turning up back in March, and his current starring role in From the Vine as a corporate executive weary of the rat race who drops out to return to Italy where he was born in search of meaning in life, growing grapes for wine. First, a little of From the Vine, then Joey Pantoliano. My name is Mark Gentile. I was born in Accelenza, Italy. What's this? I was standing there. I had this epiphany. Oh my God, men and their epiphanies. Benvenuto in Italia. Arrivederci. Mrs. Gentile, I was just sorry to see that your husband closed your retirement account. I'm sorry, he did what? Accelenza. He's not like he used to be, you know? I can't remember what it used to be. I haven't been back in 45 years. Questo pericolosissimo criminale americano. No, canadese. Canadese, America is the same sh. <laughs> You're dreaming. Sometimes dreams come true. Hey, Marcello. Call him, call him. I don't know how to make wine. Does anybody know how to make wine here? Yes, Okay, so we Google it. We Google it. Now we're going to Google it. Not only for you, but for everybody. Thank you. I got to do this. The people, the town, maybe even me. <laughs> Salute. Hi, Joey Pants calling. Hi, how are you? Thank you. Okay. Now, I read that you left Hoboken as a teenager to go to New York, not as an actor, but to become a barber. What was that all about? Oh, um, I, I moved out of Hoboken in the ninth grade, tenth grade. We, we went up to Cliffside Park, which is, I don't know, six, six miles north uh, on the Hudson River. And uh, I got a job shining shoes. At a barber shop uh, called uh, what was it? it was called uh, Hollywood Coiffures Madison Avenue Coiffures for Men that's what it was called. The guy's uh, father his his name was Hollywood Joe. He made hair pieces in in Patterson, New Jersey, and uh, and I and I was fascinated by how you made hair pieces. And guys would come into the back room and get their rugs cleaned, and then put on lace fronts, all of that stuff, which became a big part of my future. But, you know, at 16, 17 years old, I still had all my hair. 
So I, I thought I'm going to be a barber. This is great. I love this business, you know. And uh, I went I went to um, Charlie Kabibi Barber College in in Manhattan, and the idea of standing on my feet uh, was not something I wanted to do. And I always wanted to be an actor. I, I just figured I needed to make a living. Uh, so I cut hair. I, I cut hair for friends. For years, even in acting school, for five bucks, I, you know, they'd come up to my apartment. I'd go to their house with my scissors and comb, and I give people haircuts. What was it about from the vine that drew you in to want to be a part of this story? A free trip to Italy. <laughs> and that 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 was the beginning of it. I told my agent I didn't want to read it, but if I hated it, I I, I needed to get to Italy. Uh, and then uh, after I talked to Sean and Paula, we had a conference call. And I tried to talk them off the ledge and say, what are you nuts? Why would you want to give me the lead in a movie? Uh, and they uh, insisted, thank God. And, uh, and then I went off to Toronto uh, and I met with Willem and I met Ken. And, uh, and, and we started working on, on, on the movie. Uh, you know, we had very little time. I think I think uh, I think I was in Toronto. Uh, Maybe wrong, but I think I was in Toronto for the day. I got there, and then uh, I met with Willem and Sean, and uh, uh, and we we talked about the script and and, um, and and made suggestions. And then I went to wardrobe, and then the following morning I, I flew to Italy. And what about your character, Marco? What intrigued you about him? And how did you go about getting inside his head? Well, I, I, I remember, because we had so little pre-production time, uh, that I, I, I said to Sean that instead of building a character, I wanted to turn this into a documentary and infuse my own kind of history, my emotional my emotional history, because uh, 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 I could identify with a lot of what Marco was going through. Uh, I had gone through it a little earlier. And so I, I used a lot of myself uh, uh, in, in the story. Uh, you know, the, you never don't use bits and pieces of your own self, how you're like a character or how you're not like a character. But in, in this case, uh, I, it was much it was much more conscious effort. Uh, you know, I, I, what, the scenes I have with Paula, I've, I've had those scenes with, you know, one or two of my kids uh, during the course of, of, of my relationship with my children. I have four of them. Um, and they're all adults now. So I, I totally got that. And, uh, you know, and also the idea of, of Getting everything you you, you you want out of life, you know, having your dreams come true and, and still feeling empty on the inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, I knew I was empty uh, and running on empty. But but in Marco's case, he was too busy to even notice until his wife tells him. And the only thing that kind of sets him off to hit tilt is, is when he, he betrays the trust of his mentor and best friend who gives him a company and the promise that he's going to treat this company as he would want it to be treated and make, make the changes that he wanted to change, and I promise him just before he dies, and, and then I betray that trust, and it kind of breaks me. Uh, and uh, My character quits, and the next thing you know, he's in Italy. The next thing he knows is he's in Italy. Never really, uh, and, uh, and he goes on a journey back from whence he came, 50 years absent, uh, not even mastering his, his native language um and it, and and it's the course of this journey where he t- kind of finds himself and and finds the love that has been absent in his life with the woman that he loves you can you can you, know, you could be in love with a with a woman and not know it uh you could be distant and, and absent in a relationship uh, sexually or physically, you know, and and not even know it until until you're given the memo. And I liked all of that stuff. And 
Speaking of which, From the Vine is very much about leaving an unfulfilling life. You're stuck in leaving everything behind and going in search of finding a meaningful life. Did you relate to this notion personally in any way or at any particular time in your life? Yeah, of course. Um, I've written books about it. Uh, the, the, I, the, I, I, I think with Marco, it kind of happens. He, he, you know, he doesn't even know it. And I think that's kind of common for a lot of people. I know in my case, I was completely, I was confused and baffled by the idea that I'd always thought that if I, if, if I worked hard and, and got what I thought was going to make me happy, like have a career as an actor and make a living as an actor uh, and do parts that, that were fulfilling and, 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 and marry a beautiful uh, uh, model and have beautiful children, that's when that feeling in the pit of my soul was going to go away, evaporate, be replaced by all of this success. So I was kind of baffled that it, it, it didn't go anywhere. You know, and I think culturally, there's the rub. Uh, like Marco, he was working so hard at the top of the corporate ladder, and uh, he's just busy, you know, kind of like, doing the same thing over and over again and making more money and making more money uh, and not even knowing he was running on empty. I think that's how he and I differ. Uh, you know, I love those little scenes that he has with the priest or, you know, when he's in church and it, it so effortlessly transferred to these replaying of moments in his life, but in real time, at the at you know at the place that he's at in that church, you know we did that because of budgetary restraint. Mm. Uh, it was written that way. Otherwise, you know you go to you go back to Toronto and you shoot those scenes and they'd be flashback scenes. But these these wonderful moments where the characters just show up at this place and the audience goes, okay, I guess this is a flashback. This is a narrative flashback to give mm. us information we didn't have. I like that. I liked it. I liked the way Sean shot it, and uh, and uh, and I liked I liked how it it uh, delivered in that way. Now, you once said politics is show business for ugly people. Please explain. <laughs> well, they get ugly, or don't they? Um, I stole that from somebody. I, you know, I, I, I remember hearing that somewhere. I've never had an original thought ever. <laughs> but, um, but you know, it, it, it's gotten to be more and more true that the idea of celebrity is so important. I, I mean, I, I must confess that when I wanted to be an actor, I was fascinated by the creative aspects of the craft. You know, I wanted to be able to do what those guys were doing on my mother's 12-inch black-and-white television. I, I, I found pleasure in that idea of doing that. The celebrity aspect was never anything. It, it was an empty, kind of empty calories, like eating bread rather than protein. Mm. Um, and and uh, I never, never wanted... Um, the idea of, of being recognized or utilizing that. So now, you know, it's it's a it's gotten so complicated. Uh, I see I see kids kids are doing it all the time on Twitter or, or Instagram where where they're talking. But you know, now I guess people are encouraged to start exposing their lives in these one minute bites, sound bites. Uh, you know, to, to maintain their celebrity because as, as, as I see, uh, you know, recently doing Bad Boys for Life, it's all about influencers, you know, and, and bringing in people that have no, no craft at all, no, you know, training, but because they, they've got a lot of followers, you stick them in the movie and, and we killed a lot of influencers on Bad Boys for Life. Mm. You know, <laughs> 
And what are your thoughts about being part of The Sopranos with your Emmy Award-winning role as Ralphie, and what it meant to you in particular, the portrayal of Italian-Americans on screen? Well, that wasn't a portrayal of Italian-Americans in any stretch of imagination. That was a portrayal of, of uh, kind of broken people that had so much rage and anger, you know, misogyny and, and bigotry and, and as a, a byproduct of, of environment. I mean, these people were ugly criminals that David Chase wanted to show. I, I, I always thought that he wanted to show that the, the, you know, in terms of the minutia, I mean, you can see the overall is people are getting killed, people are getting whacked, people are betraying each other. Um, you know, the, the, there, there was a sequence that I was involved, my character was involved in where, where there's, you know, Tony is taking his daughter to college to look at colleges. In the meantime, there's a girl, excuse me, that's exactly the same age who's a prostitute working at the strip club, why ultimately impregnate them, uh, beat to death, um, and the idea that that people uh, didn't see. When, when, uh, I've always thought like the Godfather was the metaphor for honor family and and loyalty and the sopranos showed the deconstruction of the family and uh, you know, kind of like using using america as, uh, as the fabric of the unraveling as tony soprano unraveled so shall america hmm. but uh you know the, the the way these guys wrote for those characters uh you know my guy particular was a lot of fun mm. uh, to do but you know now 20 years later you know I I defended him with righteous indignation because that was my job but he was so broken and twisted and hateful that you know I despised him, Ralph Cifaretto and I did want to ask you your work in off-Broadway theater when you were in Vision of Kerouac. What were you up to in that? Oh, Vision of Kerouac was far from off-Broadway. We, we did that. Uh, I did that with Bob Picardo and Lane Smith and Rusty Russ, and that was a Martin Duberman play uh, that we, we did. God, I was a kid. <laughs> Where the hell did you find that? Uh, we did that at the New Dramatist on 43rd Street mm. or 44th Street, and then and then it got picked up and we did it at a, a theater called the Lion Theater on 42nd Street, and then we did another production of it in Los Angeles a couple of years later. Um, I was doing a play off Broadway right up into the uh, pandemic. Mm. Uh, and we we were in we were in previews. We had done about I don't know twenty previews. We were three days shy of our opening night when they shut down theater. They shut down mm. all of the theater. Theaters have been dark since that day. I think it was March fourteenth. Yeah. And in Vision of Kerouac, did you play Kerouac? No, no, <laughs> I played Gregory Corso. Oh. Uh, Lane Smith played. Jack Kerouac, and oh, Bob okay. Picardo played Allen Ginsberg. And I wanted to ask you, you were recently in a car accident. Are you recovered? Are you okay? I was hit by, I was actually hit by a car. Yeah. Um, uh, out walking with my family. And uh, and I'm still, I'm still on the mend. I'm still recovering. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, but I, I had trauma and uh, 10 stitches. Uh, I mean, I, I was messed up, and also 
from the trauma, I, I there was a bone broken in my left ear, so now I have ah. a hearing aid. Ah. Well, feel better. And any last word on From the Vine? Just that, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a whimsical, lovable story. Uh, uh, you know, eight months ago, people were turning to dystopian entertainment. Now we're living in dystopia, so it's a it's a reversal. Mm. You to be able to uh, leave the dystopian world we are facing in reality, where you open up a newspaper, turn on the TV, and find out that COVID cases are up twenty five percent globally as of this morning. Mm. Uh, you know, safe distances, going to video on demand and and, uh, and and watching this lovely little movie mm. and having a good laugh. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, Joey Pantoliano, for calling into our show. Thank you. God bless you. I appreciate that. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. And From the Vine is screening on virtual cinema and now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Today I thought it would be fun to read an excerpt from my novel, The New World. It's a story set in New York City that follows the struggle and triumphs of four generations of strivers, lovers, and grabbers of life. This excerpt focuses on 20-year-old David Walker, who has just been discharged from the army in Iraq for trying to shoot up his sergeant. Fortunately for David, he was able to cash in some chips to get out from jail and escape with only a dishonorable discharge. Now, returned home to live with his mother, he wonders how he'll survive, with his major skill being cheating at cards. And despite many attempts to track down the old love of his life, Jennifer, he cannot find her. Let's call this episode for the file, David and the Recruiter. David would go off at night looking for a game, Poker, blackjack, rummy, even bridge if necessary to make some money. There was a bar that he used to go to where they had a game in the back room. He took the bus out there, but he couldn't find it anymore. Everything was boarded up. David was disappointed, but worse, if he didn't find a regular game soon, he would have to find some kind of job, and there was nothing as far as he could see. It was dry out there. He took the bus back and stood on the corner looking. What was this for him? There was nowhere to go. If he stayed on with his mother, what would he be? The next day he went out, telling his mother that he was going to look for a job. But with nowhere to go, he ended up reflexively at the mall. The high glass ceiling rose above David like the spire of a television church and he imagined fighter jets above releasing their payloads on the shoppers below. A little ahead of him were two young men in buzz cuts and navy uniforms talking to two high school girls. The girls laughed and flirted with the men as the girls, I don't think so, down to the next shop. The navy men, however, didn't follow them. David looked up and saw that the two navy men were standing in front of a navy recruiting office. David slowed down to look in the window. Hi, what's your name? The shorter one asked David. His name tag said Pasquale on it. David hesitated a moment and then said his name. Great to meet you, David. The recruiter offered his hand. My name is Philip and this is my partner, Jamie. Are you interested in music, David? Who do you like? David was curious to see how this was going to go. He told them he liked rap. Rap, fantastic. My man here, Jamie, is an incredible rapper. In fact, he's been getting together with a couple of the guys and putting together a demo. Lots of Navy guys into rap. In fact, most people don't know it, but I could probably name you half a dozen rappers, big names, who are Navy men. Kid Rock. They took their Navy pay and used it to produce their first records to get started. Some of them took their Navy benefits when they got out, went to music school. Yeah, I'm talking truth to you. They paid for it with their Navy benefits because they're no fools. They know school is important. And they were mature about it this time. They weren't knuckleheads like they were in high school because they came out of the Navy with perspective. 
you can't really call yourself a man until you have perspective on life and you only get that perspective by putting yourself on the line and figuring out what your values are. I'm going to tell you straight, David, and Jamie will back me up on this because he's known me since we were in elementary together. I was always a knucklehead until I finally got some perspective in the Navy. I will always be grateful to them for that. David wanted to laugh in the recruiter's face, but he held back. The recruiter continued, But enough about me. What are you looking for? What questions do you have? David was quiet for a moment, looked at both of them, and said, Well, here's a question for you. What are the conditions in the Navy brig like these days? The recruiter was taken aback. He had not heard that one before. But he wasn't going to give up. He was going to show his partner how to handle any situation that could come up. Well, David, that's your name, right? David, that's a strange question, but I can see how you might be worried. Maybe someone has told you some stories about being in the brig and you got concerned. That's understandable. There's a lot of misinformation or bad information put out by some people who are not really that concerned with the truth, if you know what I mean. They'll just say anything to make a point. First of all, in the Navy, it's not like civilian life. You only go to the brig if you do something really bad and break the uniform military code of justice. Second, even if you do end up charged with something bad, like treason, which I'm sure would never happen to you, but suppose it did happen to some bad guy, or like the guy recently who shot up all his fellow soldiers, the actual guys he slept with and ate with every day, the scumbag, a guy like that, he's still entitled to a military lawyer under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I mean, think of that. You get a guy who's the best of the best, a ranking officer defending you, not some poor overworked legal aid sad sack. No, the Navy, say what you will, is about fair play. There's a strict way to do things, and one of those ways is you have to have your prosecutor, and you have to have your defense attorney, and they are the best of the best. Have you ever seen the movie A Few Good Men? Okay, well that's what I'm talking about, dedication, because a Navy man always gets the job done. You're going into the Navy with the finest bunch of men you'll ever meet. And you know something? Word, but it's true. The girls go for a guy in uniform. Yeah, it's true. There was this girl, David, who I was after all through high school. I'm even going to tell you her name because I want you to know that this is a true story, not some made-up BS, excuse my language. Maribel. Maribel de Jesus, and you can look her up and ask her if you don't believe me, Dykeman Street. She was very popular and stuck up and I was kind of shy, but I said to myself, be a man and ask her out. So I asked her if she had a prom date yet and she said no. And then I got up the courage and asked her if she would like to come to the prom with me and be my date. And she looked at me for a while and she said, let me think about it, I'll get back to you. So I put a good face on it, I smiled and said, sure, no pressure, I really like you and would like to treat you good like, like the princess you are. She liked that. I remember she smiled at that and I said, Okay, but don't take too long deciding. And she said she'd let me know tomorrow. Well, David, it was about four or five days later when I saw her next, and she didn't say anything to me. So I asked her if she was ready to be my princess. And she acted like she didn't hear me, so I repeated myself. And then she said, Oh, I already got a date but maybe some other time. I'll tell you, as a high school senior, I was crushed. I had nowhere to turn. But fortunately, I had a cousin in the Navy. We had been very close when I was in elementary. He used to walk me to school each day. So he said, why don't you think about joining the Navy? And I did. David, it was the best thing 
I ever did, best decision I ever made. And here's the part that you're gonna like. About six months after I went in, I went on leave and I was in a bar and I was in uniform. And who comes in but Maribel on some guy's arm. She looks at me in my uniform and I'm all muscles now in terrific shape because I just got out of basic. And she leaves the guy she's with and comes over to say hello to me. A big high, like we were best friends forever. She sits in my lap and, well, the gentleman never tells, but this young lady was making this Navy man very happy. Very happy. They love the uniform, David. What are you, 5'8", five, 5'9"? Five, I can always tell a man's height. When you put on a uniform, it's like you gain an extra three inches. For real, they look at you like you're six feet tall. And the truth is, you act as if you were six feet tall. Because after basic, you have that confidence in yourself as a man. You know you can be counted on. You know you can be trusted to carry out the mission. You know whatever is in front of you, you have that confidence in yourself. And you will be able to deal with it. David blinked as if waking up from hypnosis shook his head and murmured, Man, you are good. You are really good, Pasquale, Philip, whoever you are. Then he got himself out of there as quickly as he could, his deck of cards burning a hole in his pocket. A thin girl he bumped into on his way out told him to watch where the hell he was going as she gathered her fallen shopping bags from the floor. For an instant, David thought the dark-haired teenager was Jennifer. He stared, haunted, at the girl's skinny arms. Sorry. Sorry. Go to hell, guy. Watch where you're going. As she hurried on, David watched the thousands of Jennifers, three floors of them, but not one of them his. And the music you heard was TML's Jazzy Sax at the Mall. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Global Television Beat, a roundup with reflections and forecasts of what news and alternative discussion shows are worth listening to, or not, and with one surprising trend from the Trump presidency, an increased interest in analysis, biting commentary, humor, and satire mostly directed against Trump. Hello, Joe. This is the president speaking. The real president, not the phony one. That's you. You're the phony. And I just want to say, take a good look, Joe. This is my house. The White House. I won this house in a contest in 2016, so it's mine. Always will be. This is my office. It's great. I like it. I don't know why people call it the awful office. I never got that. I think it's pretty. If it wasn't my office, perhaps I'd be dating it. This is my hairspray. I got it to look cool. This is my wife. I got her to look cool. Look, there's a phone here and there's a phone here. You can call this phone with that phone, but I think it's too close to call. <laughs> That's a joke. It's a great joke, actually. The best. With this phone, you can call all the other world leaders. I like to call Macron in the middle of the night and then hang up. Here, let me show you. <laughs> wait, wait. We'll do it again. Photos of my loved ones and Melania. Here is Ivanka. Here's Eric and Donald Jr. And this is Gerry Eikhoff. Never gonna leave this place, Joe. You lost, I won, my house. This is my Twitter machine. This is my big Twitter machine. And this is my biggest Twitter machine. The caps lock is stuck, very handy. And this 
is my tax return machine. Still works very well. Nice. Well, Joe, good night. I won, you lost, and you will never live here. Going to bed now. My bed, not your bed. Nighty night. This is Broke on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, What's Left on the Dial, Alternative TV and Podcasts. The U.S. election has finally been secured with even Donald Trump almost tacitly acknowledging that he lost. In the aftermath, the mainstream media has now swung behind Joe Biden's return to normalcy. The dominant media opposed Trump, not on grounds that he was a corporate bloodletter who bombed Syria, murdered Iran's leading general, and laid waste to U.S. natural resources, all actions either applauded or tacitly condoned, but that he was an unfit and buffoonish manager of the empire. It's only in the world of alternative media that both Trump's actual crimes and Biden's normalcy is being questioned. Normalcy, had the global economy on the brink of a new recession before COVID, was rapidly accelerating an income disparity which created the conditions for the rise of Trump and Trumpism, and had done little to slow the environmental devastation that is wrecking the planet. CNN MSNBC and the rest have their straw man in Fox News. The mainstream networks seem reasonable in opposing the lunacy and ravings on that station. But since they seldom provide any real solutions beyond corporate-mandated reforms, the two exist in perfect harmony. The goal of all these enterprises is to eliminate any real empathy with working-class suffering while enabling the mainstream to seem morally uplifting in opposing an enemy with whom they are more similar than they care to admit. CNN fueled the rise of Trump, then looked to bolster its ratings by using him as its foil. And even once he was defeated, quickly ran a story claiming that Trump, their ratings master, was the frontrunner in 2024. The channel is filled not with Trump opposers, but Trump enablers. The relationship is not antagonistic, it's synergistic. The stakes are high with COVID raging and the economy, other than financial speculation on Wall Street, in shambles. So this is a good time for a sweeping survey of television series and podcasts that are genuinely in opposition not only to Trumpism, but also to Biden's normalcy, as well as faux alternative sites to which they stand in opposition. Strange to say, but the primary alternative to the insistent drone of corporate media, not providing news but pandering for ratings, is RT. Short for Russian television, RT, which bills itself as neither right nor left, has in fact become the clearinghouse for progressive thought in the U.S. and U.K. Three shows, Redacted Tonight, Renegade Inc., and George Galloway's Sputnik Orbiting the World, stand out as startlingly clear on U.S. and British imperial interests, on the widening income gap in the wake of the surrendering of the economy to corporate finance and tech interests, and the tough decisions that need to be made in the name of the planet so that environmental policy is more than just greenwashing. Perhaps the station's insistently critical beat is motivated by an attempt to weaken both countries from within, but whatever the reason, its critical stance often rings true. Comedian Lee Camp's Redacted Tonight, whose title implies it is trafficking in censored news, is a wildly intelligent take on the topical events, employing the Daily Show, John Stewart and Trevor Noah, approach that opens with Camp's well-founded rants on such subjects as how in the last election, with the legalization of marijuana in three states, the Reagans lost their war on drugs a war waged against the poor, and an excuse to jail them. He is ably assisted in daily show format by a team of correspondents that features Naomi Caravani's take on, for example, how in the last election dark corporate money was defeated in its attempt on the ballot to restrict issues from ever being on the ballot, Natalie McGill's report on the deliberate inaccuracies of the Trump census, and Anders Lee's look at who Biden would have blamed had he lost the election. Hint, not the Corporate Democratic National Committee for its refusal to take a stand on anything other than it was not Trump. Kemp's angry idealism and the combination of comedy and astute reporting on the part of his compadres makes this a cut above both the average late-night comedy show and the average newscast. Renegade Inc., on the other hand, focuses its once-weekly episode on a single issue, each time with a guest or guests whose take on societal problems is outside the norm. The show is hosted by Brit filmmaker Ross Ascroft, whose Four Horsemen documentary is a questioning of mainstream economists by the likes of Joseph Stieglitz, Noam Chomsky, and Gillian Tett. 
Ashcroft's deep dive into an issue has included author Richard Rothstein driving home the links between continual housing and education segregation and inequality. Another episode had lawyer and peace activist Dan Kovalik laying out in stunning detail the U.S.'s promotion of perpetual warfare under the banner of democracy, peace, and human rights. The old mainstay and former U.K. legislator George Galloway has found a second life in a wide audience on RT with his Sputnik Orbiting the World series of interviews and his Mother of All talk shows, in which he uses the sensationalist tactics of right-wing shock jocks to drive home some truths fueled by his still strong adherence to a foundering Scottish and British working class and his wide knowledge of the U.S. and U.K.'s global imperial policies. A recent mother featured journalist Garland Nixon, suggesting the assassination of the Iranian atomic scientist was a byproduct of the meeting in Riyadh between Saudi princeling Mohammed bin Salman, U.S. State Department head Mike Pompeo, and Israeli Premier Benjamin Netanyahu. Of late, Galloway has followed the case of Harry Dunn, the teenage allegedly hit-and-run victim of a female U.S. intelligence official that the U.S. claims has immunity and cannot be extradited, while the same show featured a report on how the U.S. and British governments are colluding in an attempt to extradite Julian Assange. A low-budget but highly relevant and creative answer to the millions behind not only Rupert Murdoch's Fox News, but also the emerging OAN and Newsmax, two networks Trump may eventually move to, is Means TV. Means builds itself as a worker-owned streaming service, a billing that has upset U.S. media reporting on the station. Its flagship program is Means Morning News with Sam Sachs and Sam Knight, who in a recent holiday special proudly engaged in the war on Thanksgiving, instead of, as they claim, the usual war on America's indigenous. They questioned the joyousness of a holiday which 20% of American workers spend not with their families, but working, and awarded California Governor Gavin Newsom, whose recent partying and defiance of his own protocols proved once again there is, as they said, one set of rules for the wealthy and another set of rules for everyone else. The show, though, could use more creative graphics to go along with the astute commentary. Mean sports show Southpaws has yet to find its voice and is too much a straight copy of mainstream sports shows on Disney-owned ESPN. On the other hand, art house politics makes stunning use of its do-it-yourself, low-budget aesthetic by using on one show a faux drawing and coloring class to convey the full horror of Thanksgiving, with the narrator commenting on the settler colonial myth, The Holiday Affirms. The narrator draws an indigenous, a turkey, and a pilgrim, who the instructor then chastises as responsible for the whole-scale appropriation of land that continues to lead to the destruction of the planet. For his crime, he sets the pilgrim on fire. The show used the conceit of the art class to enact a very funny and effective rethinking of this foundational myth. Elements of the so-called alternative media have become increasingly mouthpieces for the Democratic Party. Liberal hand-wringing increasingly substitutes for analysis with the show All In with Syria's White Helmets, elsewhere dubbed as the public relations wing of Al-Qaeda, and during the campaign featuring a ludicrous debate about how Joe Biden can become a force for good, already belied by his administration picks, which recently included the Uber representative who was part of the $200 million defeat of the California law requiring Uber and Lyft to behave like responsible employees. The supposedly more progressive vice president, Kamala Harris, has as one of her senior advisors, Tony West, the lawyer who led the charge for Uber against the legislation. For a long time, the genuine progressive alternative was the Russian radio network Sputnik's Loud and Clear, with an anti-war activist, Brian Becker, chairing a show that ran for five years, 1,138 episodes, and boasted over 600 interviews. The known quantity, the star element of the show, is John Kiriakou, who blew the whistle on CIA torture and was one of Time Magazine's Persons of the Year. When Kiriakou left, the show folded, pointing to a weakness of R.T. Sputnik programming that it is star-driven. Becker is back, though, in a new listener-sponsored show, The Socialist Program, in which he is a bit more strident while continuing to dazzle with his own astute analysis and perceptive interviewing acumen, aided by his on-air producers, Walter Smolarek and Nicole Roussel. Becker and Smolarek contradicted the New York Times, venturing that we will see a new, now-chastised and cautious Anthony Blinken, Biden's Secretary of State, by hammering home Blinken's support for the war in Iraq, his aid in planning the bombing and destruction of Libya, the African country with the largest oil reserves, and advocating for bombing Syria. 
The team was equally thunderstruck by the timid reaction afforded to Biden's nominee for first female director of national intelligence, Averill Haynes, explaining that she was the person who met Obama each week and advised him who to kill that week in drone bombing missions that far exceeded those of Trump or any other president. The team reported that Obama's comment on Haynes was that she was a very nice person. The show and many of these shows also work because of a rotating guest list that most prominently includes economist Richard Wolff, who lays bare the misery and devastation caused in the U.S. by the evisceration of its industries and the acceleration through COVID of what now amounts to, as he says, the worst economic crisis in a century. Another mainstay is Gerald Horn, a prolific author whose history of the slave trade is motivating the European expansion into the Americas and the settler colonial defense of slavery as one of the primary reasons for the American Revolution was the subject of his last two books. Finally, there is Mark Swoboda, whose insightful and balanced takes on the Russian state and the Slavic world make him the natural inheritor to the recently deceased and lamented Russian expert Stephen Cohen, whose voice of peace was often shouted down in the bipartisan escalation of U.S.-Russian tensions under Trump. Another source of what was once alternative news and opinion, which has recently also come around to being increasingly a sounding board for Democratic Party politics, is the website The Intercept. Democracy Now! alumnus Jeremy Scahill put together a comprehensive seven-part soundscape of the Trump administration failures. Recently, though, a seismic shift occurred when the site's co-founder and most intrepid reporter Glenn Greenwald, who helped break the Snowden revelations about NSA spying, left. Greenwald said the site censored his report on the contents of Joe Biden's son Hunter's computer, which suggested collusion for profit with the Ukrainian government, similar to the offense that was the pretext for Trump's impeachment and a marker of the similarities rather than the differences between the two parties. With Greenwald gone, the best alternative to The Intercept is the podcast Moderate Rebels with Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton and their website The Gray Zone, which also includes the reporting of Aaron Maté who continued to question the faulty assumptions of the Russiagate probe, which the Mueller report declared not actionable, and which was then used as the basis for a phony and unsuccessful attempt to impeach Trump. Trump is a tax dodger, war criminal, and scam artist who could have been indicted on actual impeachable offenses, but that, as Monte pointed out, would have meant truly draining the swamp, that is, focusing attention on the bipartisan corruption that fuels Washington politics. The latest podcast has Blumenthal and Norton examining the authoritarian censorship of the French government, as has many of the Western democracies, becomes more repressive as conditions become more desperate for its citizens. The Gray Zone bills itself as investigative journalism on empire. A report by Norton makes a compelling case for Biden's nomination for Office of Management of the Budget near attendance, support for the bombing of Libya being as blatant at the time as Donald Trump's. Trump's blunt assessment that, quote, Libya is only good for one thing. If we're not taking the oil, no interest. And it was echoed by Clinton-era think tank member Tondon's only slightly less bald-faced, we have a giant deficit. They have a lot of oil. Should Libya pay us back? Both sides concentrate on the bipartisan imperial consensus and refuse the lure of democratic or republican politics. The last source of more alternative news and opinions is the progressive wing of late-night television, especially Seth Meyers' Late Night and Trevor Noah's The Daily Show, excerpts of which can be watched on YouTube. These shows counter the ceaseless and increasingly mirthless frivolity of Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show, the misplaced and often nasty humorlessness of Jimmy Kimmel Live, and the sophisticated but often vacuous satire of Stephen Colbert's The Late Show. In the Trump era, all three of these mainstream hosts moved to try to embrace topical humor, which the audience was demanding, as the other two watched Colbert's emphasis on political humor pull him ahead in the ratings. The positive in all this was that the audience is demanding more relevance, less froth, as entertainment, and endless endorsements must now be mixed with a healthy dose of commentary on the day's events. Of all the late-night topical humor, though, Seth Meyers' A Closer Look on YouTube is the best-written, funniest pummeling of the Trump presidency. The show also boasted the African-American writer and comedian Amber Ruffin, who now has her own show streaming on Peacock, which sadly lacks the sharpness and the biting wit of her continued appearances with Myers. In stunning back-to-back weeks, Ruffin in wig and full pouty gestures, in a week where it was thought the White House was employing Melania doubles, played the first lady, quoting from an official document which she had to turn the page to read the name of their son, Barron but then said Donald had to turn more pages to remember his son's name. 
The next week, after Kanye West, 50 Cent, and Ice Cube were revealed as Trump backers, she came out as Lil Doof, a rapper who rapped against his own interests. The other late-night alternative is Trevor Noah's The Daily Show. Noah's own segments sometimes lack punch, but are always well-written and graphically astute. The strength of the show lies in the correspondence and the segments Noah helps engineer. One of the best was Roy Wood's countdown of Donald Trump's 100 Most Tremendous Scandals, a highly imaginative montage with Wood's indignation coming in at number one that after 99 scandals, Trump is still president. Desi Lydek's Thanksgiving plea to her family of conservatives, Uncle Rudy Giuliani, Cousin Sean Hannity, and Aunt Janine Pirro, has her asking the Fox mainstays for some civility at the dinner table, and each of them, in their own words, refusing. Finally, back in the fold is Jordan Klepper, returning from hosting his own Stephen Colbert-like faux conservative, The Opposition. He's even funnier in his Fingering the Pulse segments, as a debunker of the illogic of Trump supporters who... Like the couple in Washington at the recent Million MAGA March, there to celebrate the winning of Donald Trump, contradict themselves and argue against their own interests. One of the major gains of the Trump presidency was an increased interest in analysis, biting commentary, and humor and satire, mostly directed against Trump. It will be important to continue that trend as the Biden presidency attempts to confuse and beguile its adherents with a phony normalcy amid widespread panic, devastation, and destruction that has been the accumulated result of all the presidents, especially since Reagan. Trump ascended into office with a car poised at the edge of the cliff. He gleefully pushed it over and asked the country to enjoy the ride. It will take much more of the kind of sincere honesty that the above shows and cites practice if there's a chance of putting the pieces back together. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat. Signing off and breaking glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out. They do it every time. The world won't get no better if we just let it be. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again.